Um, and uh, just kind of a, to get us back to where we were at, in, in chapter 27, um, and we're, we're coming to kind of a climax of, of David and Saul's interaction. In chapter 27, David fleeing Saul, right, beginning to realize, hey, Saul's not going to change his mind. He's going to continue to try to kill me. There's nothing more I can do. I've got these 600 plus people I'm caring for in the wilderness. Um, eventually decides, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And so he goes to their enemies. He goes to the Philistines. Um, Achash, one of the, the kings, um, basically kind of socks him away um, in kind of an enemy of, of my enemy sort of situation. And so he's there. Um, he's telling Achash that he's raiding against Israel. Um, he's not. Um, he's raiding against um, some of Israel's former enemies. Um, and then in the beginning of chapter 28, we find that that the Philistines are going to go to war with Israel again, and that Achash tells David, I want you to go as my bodyguard. I want you to go with us, bring your men, and we're going to fight Israel together, right? Which puts David in a really awkward position because this is the place he's going to be king of. Is he really going to go fight against his own people? And we kind of have that dilemma laid out before us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, and then it goes to Saul, and we see Saul's dilemma. And so basically we're laid out, um, Saul has a dilemma, David has a dilemma, and what the author of 1 Samuel is doing is he's just bouncing back and forth between these, kind of like you would see um, in a movie um, or even just a work of, of, of great fiction, right, bringing you to some, a point of climax. And so as, as this is happening, then it, it goes over, and Dave, sorry, Saul sees the armies of the Philistines, he's fearful, he's overwhelmed, um, and he asks the Lord, what's going to happen? The Lord is silent. Remember, he has abused the priest. He has killed, or he's abused the prophets. He's killed all the priests except one who is with David. Um, and he has disobeyed and had the, had the kingdom stripped from him. And so he doesn't get an answer. And so he ends up in chapter 28 going to see a witch, right? Um, and, and finding out as, as he talks to Samuel that he's going to die in battle. Like that, that God is going to take his life the very next day. And so we see that, that his sons are going to die, that Israel is going, to, is going to lose. And that brings us up now. So we have David heading out to battle with the Philistines, right? And we have Saul who has seen the army and is impressed by it, who's fearful, who is now leaving indoor, going back to his army, right? And, and that brings us to where we're at this morning. So let's pick up in, in chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achash, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achash said to the commander of the Philistines, Is, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commander, commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord, meaning to Saul? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this it is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands 
and David his ten thousand. So remember, the Philistines are basically made up of five city-states. They have five kings. They're now there. They fight together as one, one army. They get there, and they're, they're going up against Israel, and someone goes, those aren't Philistines. Like, what, what are they doing here? And one of the five goes, well, that's David. He's going to fight with us. And the other four show tremendous wisdom, right? And they're like, I don't think so. Like, how do, we can't trust this guy. If he's really who you say he is and he's betrayed his people, right, he could win back favor if he routes us from the rear, right? If he comes and destroys us and fights us, like we know this guy um, is, a, is a great and valiant warrior. We're not fighting with him. Akash, you know, makes his argument that, that, that they should. Um, and in the end, they say, no, you're going to send him back. So let's, let's continue. So Akash called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and, and march out and end with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king. David is kind of feigning disappointment here. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us in battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you. Start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so we see David is just delivered right from his dilemma um, without having to decide, is he going to turn on the Philistines and potentially be wiped out? He's certainly not going to fight Israel, this place that he has been anointed to be king, and that the dilemma is solved for him. So we're going to continue in chapter 30. So these men um, are are going to push it and head home. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Hohanim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. So basically these men have been pushing 25 miles or so a day for three days to get back home. You can imagine um, probably the jubilation of knowing, hey, we didn't have to go fight against our kinsmen. And so they're going home to their, to their wives. Um, they're all alive to see their wives and their kids. And as they come up to realize that their city has been raided, that, that everyone is gone, everything has been taken, it's been burned, that the emotions are running hot. Um, the Amalekites are someone we've seen already in 1 Samuel. In chapter 15, this is who the Lord had asked Saul to wipe out entirely. Because if we go back to Deuteronomy 25, 
They were a people who had attacked Israel as they were leaving Egypt, and they were in a weakened state. Instead of being hospitable, um, they attacked them. And, and so the Lord had said, listen, someday you're going to take them out. So now we're at that day. Saul doesn't honor the Lord's command. And so now here it is that they have come and raided David and his people. Um, so you can imagine the emotions of, of, of the high of, hey, we're going back to our families, to the low of, of what's taking place. And listen, when you're exhausted and you've been emotional, you blame people. And they begin to blame David, right? You're in command. You should have left some of us here. You should have done this. You should have done that. And they just start talking about killing David. Like these men who he has cared for and taken care of in the wilderness for all these months, into years now, um, they're looking to kill him. If you remember Moses, um, the people wanted to kill Moses at one point, right, when they were in the wilderness, thinking, hey, there's no food, there's no water, you've done this to us. And they talked of stoning him, that we see this happening here as well. So let's see how David responds, picking up in verse 7. So David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the Ephesus. So Abathar brought the Ephesus to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. And so David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, and where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. But two hundred men stayed behind, for they were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake, of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit was revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Chethrites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. All right, so right, you've got these 600 men who are probably foaming at the mouth at this point, wanting to get their family back, wanting to get their kids back. They begin to push, but they've been pushing hard for three days now. And so at some point, some of the men are, are weary and tired, and they're like, we can't go any further. And so a third of the, the band stops, and they stay and begin to camp out at this, at, at this creek, and the others move forward. And they find this Egyptian um, nearly dead in the desert, left behind because of his sickness. And we, just, we see David's character, right? We see David not pushing the 200 men that they have to go, right? Like there's, there's kindness and generosity in that and leaving them behind. There's kindness and generosity to this Egyptian um, that he, he cares for him, right? Like if you're, if you're thinking of an action movie here, maybe they, they, they're torturing him. You're going to tell us, right? You were there. You're going to tell us what you know. But instead he brings food and water, like provision, kind of nurses him back to health and then asks him what's going on, um, this kindness to this man. Um, you can imagine this servant going, I'm not sure this is a good thing or not. I'm, please don't take me back to my master. And I'll tell you what you want, but don't leave me there. I can, please don't, please don't kill me. 
And so you can imagine that the tensions are high. Um, but what, what we're seeing here is, right, is that, that David asked of the Lord, what should I do? And the Lord answered and said, I want you to go. I want you to pursue him. You're going you're gonna to catch him. This chronologically is happening at the same time that Saul's in Endor. Right? As the stories go back and forth, that is Saul is not pursuing the Lord, as he is not asking the Lord what he should do, that we see that David is. So again, let's, let's pick up verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him. And they said, this is David's spoil. And so we just see a really quick victory here. Um, and just as the shame belonged to David and they considered stoning him early when they arrived, now it's like, hey, all of this is David, right? It's one of the things of Middle Eastern leadership. You get all the blame and all the shame or you get all the glory. And so David now is, is leading back um, all, of, all of their families, all of the, the spoil, all the herds, and they're moving back now to the other 200 men. Verse 21. So David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, right? They're seeing their families. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. But then all the w- wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given us into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be he who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jather and Ara and Suf and Sephmoth and Ishtoma and Rachal and the cities of the Jeherlamites and the cities of the Kenites and Horma and Borashan and Atak and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. And so, listen, we, we see the generosity that David has shown to the, to the men in letting them stay at the brook of Besor, the generosity that he has shown to the Egyptian, he continues, right? Because as they come back, these men whose families have been rescued, but who did not go into battle, right? There's others that are grumbling and they're saying, listen, we don't think they should get all the spoil. We don't think they should get a share. And David is saying, listen, you're focused on the wrong thing. God defeated our enemies. He protected your life. Like these are the things that we want to rejoice in and celebrate. And He, because He brought us victory, right? Then this spoil is a gift from Him and we're all going to share it. Right? Like 
And, and we see a king here who is giving rather than taking, right? This is one of the warnings that Samuel had given. was like, you're going to raise up a king, and they're just going to take from you. And we're seeing a different type of king here, a king who's going to be generous and a king who is going to give, right? That should begin to maybe kind of prick our heart to think about a king who has been generous with us in Jesus, right? Like that he left the glory of heaven to come to walk among us, who has been generous in giving everything that we need for life and godliness, to give us everything we need to be restored to the Father. Right? He's given us everything that we need. He has been generous to us. And it's my church that we as believers are called to be generous people. Right? That we are reflecting the character and the image of our God and King who has been generous first with us. Right? He's not sitting on high going, I need all your stuff. I need all your energy. I need all your time. I need all your relationships. He has shown us that He was generous to pursue us, to be faithful and good to us, and because He is our Dad, our Father, right? that we want to reflect His character as His children, that we become a generous people. That we do that with our time, we do that with our energy, we do that with our money, we do that with our resources, with our relationships, that we are a generous people because Jesus was a King who was generous to us, and Saul right, um, was a King who took. And as we, we see David, that he is a type of the Messiah. He's one that's pointing us to one who will come and give even more generously than after battle. That's just kind of a quick aside there. Okay, we're going to knock out one more chapter real quick. I promise this one's short. Um, last chapter of 1 Samuel. So as this is going on, right, we, we've kind of taken a side. Right? David's over here taking care of business. What's going on? We have the Philistines and Israel still have a battle to fight. Right? Saul is back leading them. He's left indoor. Verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Machalashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon the sword and died with him. Sorry, and, and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Right? Like what a sad, brief, just facts here, um, just kind of a, an unceremonial end to this saga that has been Saul, that he has been striving and jealous against David. Um, Acts 13.21 tells us that he actually reigned for 40 years, he had a long reign, but for most of it he knew that the, the kingship would not go to his sons, right? He knew that he had dishonored and displeased God, and, and he has been a tortured individual. Um, the armor-bearer most likely feared touching the Lord's anointing, was unwilling to put him to death. We see Saul wanting an honorable death, without shame, without suffering, 
didn't want to fall into the hands of his enemies. If you remember, um, Samson was one who he was mutilated and, and, and dishonored um, in battle. And, and ultimately his death here, although literal, he died, was symbolic in the fact that it was by his hand that he lost the throne. Philistines didn't take it, right? David didn't take it. He lost his throne by his own disobedience decades before, and now his life would be taken by his own hand. Right? It's, it's symbolic of his entire reign as king, of his disobedience. Um, and so then the last few verses of 1 Samuel. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashereth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshen. But when the inhabitants of Gabish Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul, the bodies of his son from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. You remember in uh, 1 Samuel 11, we see um, this city of um, Jabesh Gilead was besieged, right? And that Saul, before he's lost the kingship, before he's disobeyed the Lord, right, the power and the Spirit of God comes upon him and he goes and he, he rescues the city and these people who obviously remember it. And out of honor and respect for their king, they go and they steal back his body and the sons to give him an, an honorable burial. And I think as we, as we see that as kind of the end of, of 1 Samuel, I want to remind us where we started. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, Hannah's song here, her prayer. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a, is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full save, have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, for she who has many children is forlorn. Listen, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Where we started this journey in 1 Samuel, we see Saul's life, right? Like, And he was exalted and then he was brought low. And the David who is, that Saul has tried to hold down has been raised up by God. Right, that, that, that God is um, working to provide His people a king after His own heart. So listen, we, we just walked through three chapters pretty, pretty quickly. And there's a balance in, in Old Testament historical narrative, right? Of like pushing through, getting through the narrative, moving the story along, getting the facts, um, and honestly seeing Jesus, right? Like the, the point isn't just that you now have some historical understanding of what Israel looked like 3,000 years ago. But it's that we want to see Jesus, right? We want to be arrested by Him. We want to have our heart's affection stirred for Him and see His character. And so listen, Saul's um, desire not to be dishonored in death, we get that, right? Like we don't want shame. We don't want dishonor 
in life or in death. And so we can resonate with Saul here going, I don't want to be dishonored. I'd rather fall on my own sword and to go against and see what the Philistines would do to me. But would it not this morning push us to consider a king who is willing to be dishonored? Right? Like, does our mind not immediately run to Jesus, one who was willing to go to the cross, which was a curse, right? which was an abomination, right? to be dishonored on our behalf? Like Jesus left heaven. He was mocked, and He was humiliated, and He was spit upon, and He was beaten, and He was lied about, and He had a sham of a trial. He was betrayed, lied about, dishonored. Right? And, and what does the author of Hebrews say? This is chapter 12, verse 2. Would we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, He knew dishonor was coming for Him. That He was going to be, like, humiliated dishonored, assumed that he was a fraud, that he wasn't who he claimed to be, or it wouldn't have happened. That his, that his followers right, were going to be um, devastated by it. And yet, an innocent king, willing to absorb shame and wrath and guilt and dishonor, who didn't deserve it, took it, so that people like Saul, who are us, who desperately want to avoid it and do deserve it, won't get it. Right? That we get innocence and we get honor and we get acceptance and we get the Father as sons and daughters because Jesus was willing to take something that rightly belonged to us. It was shame and it was dishonor and it was guilt and it was wrath. And so in that death and in Jesus' resurrection, like David routing the Amalekites in chapter 30, Jesus routes our enemies. Like they, they, they run from Him. They have been routed. Death, sin and temptation, and Satan. Like they have been wiped out by Jesus. And so in verse 6 of chapter 30, remember what David did? It says, as, he, as the people were bitter in soul, Right as they were distressed, as they've been weeping, what does it say? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We can strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God because He lives and because He's taken the dishonor and the shame that we deserve. Because He's alive today, we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord as well. And so I want us to look at our three enemies just briefly and see how we can begin to strengthen ourselves in them. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is we're going to look at the promises of God, the things that He has fulfilled, and His character. Right, That's the way that we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Listen, death is an enemy. Because death is a reminder of it's, we're not supposed to die. We are eternal beings. right? And so fear creeps in because it separates us from our loved ones. And we're not sure what's on the other side. And we're afraid of judgment and of punishment. And, and so death is this enemy. And it... it, it, it it creates fear and worry in us. But some of the promises of God are this. For those who know Him, right, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? Like that we don't mourn without, like those without hope. Jesus tells us, I go to prepare a place for you. Like there's a place waiting on you. 
He, t- he tells us in, in 1 Peter that we are sojourners, we are travelers. Like this isn't your home, your home's awaiting you. Right? And these are promises that are meant to like encourage us as we face sickness, as we face death, as we face struggle. But where have we seen some of this fulfilled? You go to 1 Corinthians 15. We find that the death of death was in the death of Jesus. Right? Like the, the death was wiped out. Its power was wiped out. That we don't have to fear death because Jesus died the death that we deserve and then came out of the tomb and is alive today. Hearing your fears and your worries and your cries that, that He has defeated death. And so we lean into the promises of Scripture. We look for places where it's been fulfilled, and it's at the cross. Like So the promises are true because Jesus has fulfilled it at the cross. And then we look at His character. We see Him weeping right over Lazarus, knowing that He gets the emotional strain. We see Him taking Jairus' daughter right, and bringing life back into her, that He has the power of life over death. Then we go back to the garden and are reminded that God is meant to be with His people for eternity. We go to some, a place like Revelation 21 where He says He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. Right? There will be a place where there is no more death and no more mourning. Right? And so as we begin to find ourselves strengthened, that death is still a, a reality in this life. But we don't look at it as those who have to fear it any longer because of the promises of God, because of the fulfillment of God, and because of the character of God. And so we can begin to find our hands strengthened by a living God who's given us His Spirit and His Word so that we don't look at death the same any longer. A second enemy we have is Satan. right? So Satan is, is, is an enemy who's looking to, is to destroy, to deceive, who's prowling around. But church, his time is short. Like, and he's not on equal footing. It's not an, a, a battle that goes, we're not sure which way it's going to ha- go. In Genesis 3, we start Scripture by God telling, there's going to be one who's going to come and crush your head, Satan. And it's Jesus. Like that promise has been fulfilled at the cross. Right? We're reminded as Scripture ends. We just referenced this, but let me read it to you. This is Revelation 21. So Scripture starts with us with God and Satan being promised that his head would be crushed. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away." And one of those former things that will pass away is our enemy, who will no longer be able to touch us with pain and suffering, death, disease, fear, looking to deceive us. And the final enemy is sin, right? Temptation. Listen, we, we still live in the presence of sin. The power of sin has been broken. Listen to this from Romans 6. Here's our promise. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Apart from Jesus, you are enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Church, the promise is this, is that Jesus has done what we could not do. And because He's done it, because of His perfect life, His obedient death, and His resurrection, He has brought us in as adopted sons and daughters of the King, of those who trust and follow and treasure Jesus. And it happened at the cross that the power of sin was broken. And yes, we still have sin around us in this, in this life. It's why Harmon earlier referenced this, this current evil age, right? That we are living before um, the second coming. And at that point, it will be gone forever. We will no longer be in the presence of it. And Hebrews will tell us that sin has fleeting pleasure. And because we have an enemy who's alive right now, who's looking to deceive us, and sin has fleeting pleasure, we're at risk to be deceived into not trusting God for our good and for our satisfaction and for our pleasure and trusting other things. Like what makes you happy? What makes you satisfied? And you can find that you will look for good things to satisfy you, and they won't. So, right, if you start to save money, right, you're trying to be a good steward and save money, right, and you're like, if I could only get to, and you fill in the blank. When you get to that number, you're not satisfied, right? You're like, well, now I just need to get to this number. And, and the thought of being down there where you once were is like terrifying to you because it doesn't satisfy you. And, and, and it's not a sin to save money, right? It can be the same thing with weight, like you're losing weight. And you're like, I just need to get to this number until you get to that number. And then you're like, well, I need to get to that number, right? Why? Because it doesn't satisfy. And it's not sin necessarily, right? It just doesn't give you what you thought it was going to give you. For me, it's Redeemer, this good and gracious gift from the Lord. And there was a time when there were 13 of us. And I'm like, okay, Lord, if we can just, like, just get to like, like where we couldn't all die in a car wreck, right? Like, can we get a little more? And then you're like, oh, man, if we could just hit 100. God, if you would just do this. If we, it, this will never satisfy me. And so if, if we're looking for satisfaction... In sin, it is fleeting pleasure that is looking to deceive you and to tell you that God is not enough. But we can also take really good things, really good gifts, and find a way for them not to satisfy us as well. To not to to give us what we think we want and need. And so, and yet the Psalms psalmist tells us this that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. God is not going to create anything that's going to give you more pleasure than He will give you. And so the question is, is who do we trust, right? And what do we look for for satisfaction and for peace? Because in the moment, right, sin is going to tell you, I will deliver something God can't. And it will give pleasure that is fleeting. And then it, you will find rotted destruction that will lead to death. And so the question for us is this, is the power of sin has been broken in Christ because we have His Spirit we do not have to sin any longer. But where do we trust for our satisfaction and for our joy? Is it our sin? Is it these things before us? Or is it the Lord? And so, here's what I would encourage you to do this week. Here's where we're going to end. 
that we would ask God to reveal Himself to us as a treasure. Would you take the first part of Colossians 3 or take Ephesians 2 and just meditate, read through those chapters this week going, God, would you allow me to see you as Scripture reveals you here? Just the, the richness and the depth and the beauty. Would you stir my heart for affection for you? Would I see you as treasure? Because as Jesus is elevated in you, the things of this world will go strangely dim. And they will lose power and hold on you. Right? They don't bring satisfaction in the end anyway. So church, death is coming for all of us. It is appointed unto each of us but once to die. And apart from Jesus, we should fear that death. In Christ, we don't. And we have an enemy who wants to deceive us and wants to give us fleeting pleasure. So like knowing that death is coming and that we do have an enemy and there are fleeting pleasures that can deceive us, right? would we turn our attention and our affection upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him took shame that wasn't His, was ours, to bring us in as sons and daughters, to give us everything that we need for life and godliness, pleasures forevermore at His right hand, that we would know and trust and follow and submit and walk after Him. Because that's what we long for all of, all of us, is that we would see that and believe that. And listen, the temptation and the power of sin begins to fade away as Jesus looms larger and larger for us. I'm going to pray for us. The band is going to come back up. If you need someone to talk to, someone to pray with, there'll be some men and women in the back of the room just asking the Spirit to continue to work, to move, to convict, and to give us eyes, not just to know about Jesus, but to see Him as the glorious One that He is. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we can find an ancient text and be reminded that You have routed our enemies. Thank You that as, as David sought to strengthen his hand in You and Your promises, God, that we have even more than David had to cling on, cling to. That we have your life to look back on. So Father, would we be a people who pour over your word, finding promises, finding your character, God, seeing the fulfillment that you are faithful and just to do what you said you would do. So Lord, in this moment, God, would you be revealing to us... Um, sin that is currently maybe pleasing us and yet is going to be fleeting and destroy us. God, would you give us eyes to see things that don't feel like sin in our hands and in our lives right now? God, but that will never satisfy us, will never give us what we want. And Father, would you allow us to, the humility to, to repent and confess those things? God, would you fill it with you? God, we need strength to do that, and so we're grateful for your spirit and for your word and for your people. God, would we honor you as you work and move among us. In Jesus' name, amen.